Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is J.F. Martel. Today, for the first time, Phil and I tackle a straight-up academic monograph, an incredible, indeed poetic feat of historical detective work entitled The Castrato, Reflections on Natures and Kinds by Martha Feldman. Feldman's a cultural historian specialized in the development of modern music. In this book, she tries to resurrect a class of artistic figures from the not-so-distant past, the famous castrati, those Italian singers who owed their unearthly voices to the fact that they'd been castrated for that specific purpose before reaching puberty. Now, you won't be surprised to learn that it was Phil, himself a distinguished cultural historian, who suggested that we discuss this unlikely entry in the Annals of the Weird. At first, I wasn't sure why. I'd heard, of course, of the singing eunuchs of the early modern era. My assumption was that the castrati were essentially men who could sing like women. But as I read Feldman's book... And as we will see on today's show, the truth is that the castrato's voice is neither masculine nor feminine. It exists betwixt and between, a third kind, a singularity. And thanks to that voice, the castrati have occupied an interesting liminal zone in the early modern imagination, a zone straddling the old and the new, the human and the animal, the angelic and the monstrous. As it turns out, these relics of Western music history could easily serve as emissaries of the modern weird. Emissaries second only, of course, to those intrepid denizens of modernity who've chosen to support the Weird Studies podcast on Patreon. How's that for a segue? Dear listener, you too could ascend to the ranks of these chosen few, unless, of course, you're already there, in which case we thank you for your support. Neither Phil nor I is much of a singer, But know that even now, starry-eyed angels sing your praises in a haunting celestial falsetto. Can you hear them? Great. Enjoy the show. Me too. It's Love the, the simplicity of mono. Yeah, it sound. It actually sounds better uh, to have mono audio for voices. For voices, yeah, for sure. You, you told me that, and I didn't believe you, but turns out you were right. So. Did you know that Stanley Kubrick mixed all of his films in mono? Really? Yeah. Huh, like, so even like two thousand and one is in mono. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. How odd. I think they came out with stereo mixes later. But I mean, they his, sound good. Yeah, he loved mono. He's like, there's one screen, there should be one speaker. <laughs> Everything should come from one place, like Hal's, uh, you know, a cyclopean eye. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of a, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't think much of mono for music. Stereo is definitely better than mono for music. Yeah, and stereo kind of mimics the 
sensory apparatus. Yeah, the fact that you have two ears. We have two eyes for depth, but we have two ears for no reason other than there's sounds coming from that way and no, sounds coming from that way. No, that's not true at all. That's it's it's our ears that give us a sense of location in space. Exactly. But yeah, you need... so so if you had one ear, you would have much less of that. No, I know, but I'm, what I'm saying is that the they're facing different directions. So there's a stereo quality to hearing that's not necessarily yes. present in sight is what I mean. Like, oh, you I don't, s- oh, I don't know about that. The fact that our eyes face forward doesn't mean that, I mean, like, let me tell you, if you're trying to do something that really requires depth perception, like judging distance in boxing, for example, you definitely want both your eyes. Although... No, I totally agree with that. Although That's actually, something, yeah. although something crazy happened recently. There's an MMA fighter named Michael Bisping, who was for a while the middleweight champ, kind of a remarkable guy, famous for having enormous will. He's like not the most naturally gifted athlete, but an incredibly willful one. And his eye was injured... I don't know, 2011 or something, and got really bad. And his eye always looked kind of a little weird, like it was slightly pointing off to one direction. And he was just sort of like, oh, yeah, you know, I just have like this problem with my eye and I'm waiting till I stop fighting and then I'm going to get it properly taken care of surgically. And then he retired. And it turns out that that was a glass eye the whole time that in fact, the injury that had damaged his eye had damaged it to the extent they had to remove it surgically. And he had been lying to athletic commissions, the media and everybody else for years wow. saying that he had two working eyes when in fact he had one, which that means he won the middleweight championship with, one with, eye. with impaired death perception, which is an unbelievable athletic yeah. accomplishment, a testament to will. Right. So yeah, you definitely can get by with one eye, but two eyes are better. No doubt go. about that. But you I need, think I you misunderstood you. I, yeah, I, think you were, I, th- I, think I was precise. I was saying that you need two eyes to see properly, um, and you need, of course, if you have one ear, you're only going to hear half of what you would normally hear. There's, I'm not debating that. I'm just saying that the fact that if our eyes were pointing at in opposite directions, like in certain animals, sight would be a very different type of phenomenon, whereas our ears aren't pointed forward like certain like predators, but they're pointed out to get more of a an ambiance kind of, it's less directional. Like cats yeah. actually move their ears around like you would move your eyes around. Oh yeah, that's true. Like, so yeah. like there's more directionality to their hearing, whereas our hearing, we're kind of just immersed in this sound world. And um, I don't know, I'm just... There's a discussion to be had about how stereo sound is actually reproduces a kind of environment better than mono sound would for if you're if you have like an ambient mix with different sound elements mm-hmm. coexisting. That's all. Yeah, well, I think human beings aren't particularly gifted in any particular part of the sensorium. You know, we have mediocre vision. Yeah. Uh, we have mediocre ears, you know, are uh, quite apart from the direction that our ears point in. A lot of animals, including dogs and cats, can hear upper ranges of pitch that we can't. Hence, a dog whistle that looks like it doesn't make a sound at all, but actually makes a sound that dogs can hear because they can hear higher pitches. Whales um, can hear low, low-end sounds that we can't hear, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. The human thing is to not specialize. We're exactly. A, we're a Swiss army knife. We don't specialize, so we're fucking everywhere. You can find us in every ecological niche on the planet. We're like cockroaches. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly what we are. Cockroaches. 
that it's yeah strangely that's strangely apropos uh, of what we're going to be talking today about the human body and uh, oh yeah indeed how, how it's built. This was a fascinating read. Well, why don't you tell us what we're talking about today? You can introduce the book. This is a book by a musicologist named Martha Feldman, and the book is titled The Castrato, Reflections on Natures and Kinds. And this might be the first, like, actual, according to Hoyle, academic monograph that we've done on this show. Like, uh, that's a particular literary genre. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a musicologist, as Martha Feldman is, you write books that tackle some particular topic within your area of specialty, which is for Martha Feldman is music, obviously, and more specifically, the history of singing. And the castrato is a study of one of the, it's one of those things that if you're in classical music culture, if you know a lot about music history, is you're so used to the idea that it doesn't really phase you. The idea that for a period of a bit more than 200 years, maybe 300 if you stretch it. Uh, there's a whole industry in Italy and Italy only of young boys being selected on the basis of their musical aptitude to be castrated at a key point before laryngeal development continues. So, you know, when your voice breaks, that's because your larynx, little twist of cartilage in your throat, uh, it descends. So you get an Adam's apple and it elongates. And so you end up having a lower voice than you do when you're a child. This is obvious. And what castrati were, were boys who had had that process interrupted. And it's not just one or two, you know, from the mid 16th century, ending finally with the death of the last castrato, an outlier named Alessandro Mareschi in 1923. Um, in that period of time, there were thousands of children who were operated on in this way uh, in order to fill chapels, particularly religious establishments that wanted singers, but also that filled the opera houses of Europe with singers of, if the legends are to be believed, unexampled and unsurpassed vocal power and precision, technique, virtuosity, color, brilliance. Uh, castrati are legendary performers in the Western art music tradition. And there are so many operas that were written for Castrati, uh, you know, Handel's operas like Giulio Cesare, for example. All the heroic characters, the gods and kings of these operas in the 18th century, particularly the early 18th century, all written for Castrati. Uh, and this big episode of music history is so kind of obvious if you're into music history, you're like, oh yeah, Castrati. And reading Feldman's book really brought me up against the basic weirdness of that set of economic and artistic arrangements, mm -hmm. you know, uh, mm -hmm. the profound strangeness of there being an elite core of musicians who sacrificed their bodies, sacrificed their generative potentials. Which was a huge sacrifice in an era basically governed by doctrines of primogeniture and that sort of thing. And patrilineal, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, so, and so reading this book really kind of made the stone stony for me. It really got me thinking like, wow, the castrato. Like, I have a feeling that 
most people who are listening to this are probably not musicologists, probably the idea that there was a whole industry that ran for centuries, castrating boys to make them ready for singing careers. This probably sounds exotic and grotesque. Uh, hence, a good weird studies topic, I thought. Well, what's, what's, what's cool about it is that when you first told me about this book, I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I, of course, I knew about Castrati. And I'm sure a lot of people and all of our listeners know about the Castrati. And we've, we've just been kind of told this and we just kind of accepted it. Oh, yeah, there used to be these singing eunuchs in, in Europe. And, right. But when you really think about it, this was the only instance of systematic kind of culturally oriented castration going on in modern Europe. Um, eunuchs were all over the place in the ancient world. Uh, in medieval Byzantium, they had eunuchs. And there's all kinds of reasons we could get into as to why eunuchs have been so prevalent throughout history. But this is the only example that I know of in modern times, like after 1500, where there was an institution of castration. And it was yeah. done in the name of singing. And yet, and yet, what's interesting when you read the book is that the castrato maintained or, or just still embodied the eunuch and how the eunuch manifested in, in politics and history before. It, they continue that role of being mm -hmm. these liminal, tricksterish kind of characters. We can get into that too. But um, like one thing that really struck me early on in the book is when she says basically that the castrato voice is the basis on which the entire kind of style of modern singing is it's all rooted in that institution that the castrato kind of wrote the book as to how one should sing and that yep. You know, a lot of the composers in the 19th century missed the good old days where there were more castrati to sing these parts. Um, so the castrato wasn't just an outlying eccentric sideshow to the musical world. The castrato was really central to the whole institution of music in modern, early modern Europe, which I found really interesting. Um, I thought that they were just boys who were castrated so they could sing like women. But that's not what you get from the book. They had their own way of singing. It was a, right. a, a, it was a singular type of voice, and there were many variations within that. But it was a, it was a phenomenon that we simply that simply doesn't exist anymore because there are no more castrati. So that's yeah. interesting. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there is the actual auditory proof or evidence of Castrati, which is very, very meager. It's very thin. A single surviving member of the papal chapel. Uh, in 1903, a change of management at the Vatican. I forget which pope it was. Basically a change of the uh, Kapellmeister, but also the, the chapel master, but also of the top levels of Vatican hierarchy decreed that although existing members of the papal chapel would be grandfathered in, there would be no more castrati. And this was already, you know, the phenomenon of impoverished Italian families giving up their children to the church to be castrated and to become singers in the papal chapel or, or, or any number of lesser chapels. That had already long before really passed away. There were only a few outliers. This one last guy, the last castrato to sing in the papal chapel, Alessandro Moreschi, actually made a few recordings around 1903, 1904. Um, the 
audio equipment of the time. The recording equipment was very primitive. It's acoustic recording, so you have to sing into a big horn, which transmits the vibrations of your voice to a needle, which wiggles in sympathy with the vibrations and thereby cuts a groove onto a rotating shellac disc. Um, this is as opposed to, you know, when you use a microphone to electronically amplify that signal, you have this feeble little signal uh, and that is very much deprived of upper partials, the, the higher pitches that go into sound. And so the result is very muffled. The media themselves were very, very delicate. And such recordings as exist of Alessandro Moreschi are noisy, uh, overlaid with many layers of auditory dirt. But even when they were pristine, they would have been very low fidelity because, as I say, it cuts out all the higher frequencies. Since the higher frequencies, it would have given you a sense of the color of the voice, what is supposedly unique about the castrato voice, which there are thousands of surviving accounts of. But even though we have a recording of it, it doesn't really tell us that much. And also, it's unclear whether Moraski was vocally over the hill. He almost certainly was. He was probably past his prime. And he probably wasn't even a very good musician by the standard, the historical standards of the castrati. So we have these multiple layers of unreliability to the existing recording that we have. But we do have recordings of a castrato. And the sound, even as mediated and muffled as it is, the sound is really eerie. The idea I had of doing a show on castrati came about partly because I read the book and I was like, wow, this, this shit gets really weird when you think about it. But also just the sound of those recordings, like that recording of Ave Maria that I shared with you. And we I'm can listening to it room. right now. Yeah. Yeah. As you're talking, uh, it's kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But there's a kind of uh, a shiver of strangeness that comes from these old recordings, partly because, you know, it's like seeing something in a cracked mirror you know, the, the mere fact of seeing something that is close yet so distant from us. Mm -hmm. I mean, Moreski was like a coelacanth. He was this weird survival of a primeval age. At least that's kind of, that's one way that people think about it. Um, there's a kind of a deep strangeness in such archaic survivals, quite apart from the strangeness of hearing a voice of somebody who is physically altered to make it.
Yeah, it is. It is a very haunting and strange sound, and you can even, you know, despite technical limitations, uh, nevertheless, that strangeness breaks through, and you can hear it. It doesn't sound like a woman. It doesn't sound like a boy. It sounds like its own thing, and this is all due to the physiological effects of castration, which uh, right. Martha Feldman gets into in the first chapter of her book. First of all, we can get into the actual barbaric procedure itself, which is pretty horrible. I mean, all these castrations were done without, there was no anesthetic, right? This was done oh, on boys. Oh, they, had, they had opium though. They would traditionally give them a tincture of opium, Yeah, which, you know, that, that seems fair. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's not modern anesthetic. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> um, to get your like literally get your balls cut out of your body. I don't know how much opium you would take for that. The standard practice was to lie the boy down and put in these incisions in the testicles and remove them that way and cut out right. basically perform a vasectomy and then remove the testicles. And uh, what would that do? Well, it was more than just like your voice didn't drop. It completely altered the morphology of your body, the way your body developed over time. And a lot of these changes actually contributed to the voice in different ways. So the voice remained high. That's the first thing. But also it tended to change the way your bones developed so that your chest cavity would expand and become huge, which made you into this huge resonance box, which would help you project your voice like mad. Uh, It would sometimes result in a kind of- Massive lantern jaw. Yeah, big jaws or big skulls. Uh, They have a name for that. I can't remember. Well, it's a little bit like a disease called acromegaly that causes the bones to keep growing past the point where they should have. And apparently castration, one of the effects is that the whatever the little- I don't know, the genetic code lines are that tell bones to stop growing and fuse, that that is disabled. And so the, the maxilla and mandible never quite fuse properly. They just keep getting bigger and bigger. So there are examples in the book of caricatures of singers who have these almost inhuman faces, like this yeah. uh, porcine or simian faces with these massive barrel chests and often weirdly elongated limbs and fingers. Uh, But except for the limbs and fingers part, all of these things, as you said, turn them into massive resonating chambers. Right. Which is a, a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing when you think about it, because you make the small modification and you're basically creating, like transforming the body. It's almost a kind of a Frankenstein procedure where mm-hmm. you're creating a, a new type of human being, a kind of transhumanist um, yes. um, modification of the organism that turns the human into something else. And that was very much known to people at the time. And, and therefore, the castrato occupied a very strange liminal space between genders, between social institutions. They belonged to an old regime, but they were also heralds of a new order of being. We can get into that. Um, and uh, they uh, were uh, mocked, ridiculed and feared, but also revered and adored and respected. They were very strange characters. And in a way, uh, and this Martha Feldman does this brilliantly in her book, she shows us how they kind of encapsulate all of the different forces that 
constitute early modernity, they kind of just contain within themselves these historical forces and in a yeah. way become emissaries of the modern in mm-hmm. a strange way. But at the yeah. same time, they're also a callback to more ancient, you know, earlier forms of, of existence. You know, I, I kept remembering as I was reading Spinoza's famous, you know, th- the third part of the ethics where the way Deleuze always summarized that chapter was that Spinoza was asking the question, what can a body do? Because, you know, Spinoza's philosophy is very much about bodies, but bodies including any type of entity that exists, but the human body in particular. And one of the things that Spinoza says is that we do not know what a body can do because what a body is, is the result of a bunch of affects the way that the body is affected by its environment and shaped by its environment. But a small modification can spur a process that completely transforms the body into something that you wouldn't have been able to imagine if you hadn't changed that affect. So in a sense, the castrato is is the his modernity inheres in his being a mutant. The, the archetype of the mutant is a modern archetype. It's not something you'll find in myth and magical traditions or in folklore. The mutant is a a sci-fi character. And there's something about the scientific procedure that creates this type of human that to me heralds the arrival of the mutant in the archetypal space of the modern imagination. Wow. That's a really interesting thought. Well, yeah. Then from that point of view, in a way, I mean, Feldman doesn't say this, but from what you're saying, the best way to understand the castrato archetypally is to read X-Men. You know, I, I mean, Feldman, very much to her credit, does try to understand the castrato archetypally in terms of chickens, particularly. And, yeah. and uh, Barn- um, barnyard animals. Yeah. <laughs> barnyard animals. And, and this is coming from contemporary writings, particularly the autobiography of a castrato who served in the Russian court for decades uh, named Balatri, who left a remarkable testament of his life as a castrato behind. And the the figure of Pulcinella um, comes up. So she is understanding the castrato mythically and archetypally, but it's so interesting that you're quite right. The archetype that works the best to understand the castrato is a modern, like 20th century, 21st century archetype of the mutant, as in the X-Men. Now in the X-Men, my understanding, I'm not a big superhero comic book reader, not these days anyway, but um, my understanding is that the mutants in Doctor Xavier's Academy are all people who were just kind of born with a mutation. They didn't choose it. And in fact, it's very unwelcome because it ostracizes them from human society. That's not always the case. Some of them are born, but like Wolverine, for instance, was uh, was engineered. Oh, that's yeah. right. He's the one with this adamantine skeleton that was like surgically implanted in him, right? By the RCMP. <laughs> yeah. By the RCMP? <laughs> Originally, he was, yeah, I think in the, there are, all these superheroes now have many competing origin stories, but one of them was that uh, he was a, a secret Canadian government project, <laughs> which basically would have cost the entire GDP of Canada for an entire year. <laughs> <at the> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that he was made in a secret base by the RCMP. Now, uh, some I'm a comic book fan might want to correct me on that, but that's what I remember from my very short X-Men phase when I was a kid. But yeah, some of them are born that way. Some of them are uh, made uh, that way, made into that. Um, So X-Men is a Marvel series, correct? 
I don't know. I can't even remember that anymore. Maybe. It is, yeah. So, for, it's like Spider-Man, for instance, is a mutant because he was... Something bitten happened by a spider. Him, bitten by a radioactive spider. Uh, so, Actually, the, the case of Wolverine is probably most instructive because, as I recall, Wolverine has no idea. He's one of those people... He's like Jason Bourne. He wakes up, doesn't know who he is, and he has these weird abilities and has to go through his life trying to figure out who he really is. Yeah. And that, and that too, that is absolutely on point for the Castrato. I mean, these are children who obviously have no say in the matter, although officially nobody could get castrated who didn't assent to the procedure, but you have yeah. to ask what assent could possibly have meant in this she gets context. Ins- yeah, because consent, I mean, it was uh, a condition at the time that the child gives consent, but of course, modern ideas of consent didn't yet exist. And so uh, consent just meant basically your dad telling you that's what you're going to be doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, it was the same for women getting married. Women had to give consent to a, a marriage. But of course, um, the, well, the richer you were as a woman, the, the more likely it was that you were being forced into a marriage. Mm. Um, and so, so consent, yeah, yeah, it was, it's a, yeah, it's an ambiguous word. Okay, so like what would typically happen to a castrato would be that uh, a child's father very often would make a hard, cold financial decision like, okay, our family does not have enough money with such properties we have. It's all entailed uh, for the, the eldest born. Feldman points out that the widespread practice of castrating boys in Italy happens right around the time that uh, Patrilini becomes the law and custom of the Italian peninsula. Specifically which, primogeniture, which is the firstborn gets everything. Because before right. that, uh, the, in the Middle Ages, contrary to popular belief, they had more of a clan-based kind of system where the whole family would split and share resources and move them from generation to generation. Whereas in Italy, it became very much about the eldest son gets everything. And right. And then you're left with younger children who, what are you going to do with them? You could send them into service of the church, you know, younger daughters who were never going to get married, just being um, sent off to nunneries. Or sons into the priesthood. Yeah. Sons into the priesthood. But then there's this particular wrinkle because, you know, people start figuring out that when you have a very musically talented child and you arrest their physical development or, or not arrest it, but transform it, because clearly they continue to grow, but they grow in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, then you might end up with somebody who has almost literally, yeah, I'm just going to say it, superhuman vocal abilities. And we'll get into what that means. But uh, I'm really liking the X-Men thing. I'm going to keep going with the X-Men thing. It's just sort of like you don't have any choice. You are given this like transformation and then you end up at a specialized academy, just like Dr. X's academy, a specialized academy sheltered from the rest of the world. The rest of the world doesn't even see you. So you're, you're kind of sheltered from the mockery and misunderstanding of the world and are given a sheltered environment in which to develop your superpowers. Yeah. And interestingly, not only were they the castrati singers, but because of the respect that they garnered through their art and their function within, uh, specifically within religious services and that sort of thing, and state uh, ceremonies, they became extremely 
powerful politically. Uh, a lot of them worked as diplomats, ministers of various sorts in, in Spain and Italy. Many of them were acted as spies. Mm-hmm. They ended up in a position very close to what an X-Man <laughs> uh, yeah. is doing in the world, in the fictional universe of uh, Marvel Comics. They, I mean, the greatest of all Castrati, or at least the most famous of all Castrati, Farinelli, was given like what it would have been the GDP of a decent sized country, like uh, unbelievable right. wealth. Uh, he was given that money as an inducement to retire from the London stage where he had already made a vast fortune um, and was hired to sing to the mad King Philip V of Spain to ease his quote unquote melancholy. Right. That sounds like some super villain shit, right? Yeah. I mean, these kind of crazy origin stories like, yeah, I'm going to have my house mutant in here to assuage my madness. There's a scene that she describes of, uh, I think it's Balitri. Is that his name? Yeah, Balatri. Uh, Balatri. I think it's him who goes to see the Tsar of Russia. And the Tsar sends him to see one of the Khans, one of the, basically the Mongol yeah. uh, kings in uh, one of those, um, you know, northern Middle Eastern states. And it's been part of the Russian Empire. And this Castrato performs for the Khan. And the Khan is like, what are you? Yeah. What? You're not human. What are you? And the Castrato responds with a myth, a kind of origin story about yeah. how he came out of an egg. And it's like, it's like, he's it, basically writing us a Marvel superhero's origin story. So he says, um, so this is Balatri himself writing this account of what happened with the Khan. He says, I, he started by asking me whether I was male or female and where from whether such people are born or rained down with a voice and ability to sing. I was all confused about how to answer. If male, I'm practically lying. If female, still less do I say what I am. And if neuter, I would blush. But screwing up my courage, I finally answer that I'm a man, Tuscan, and that cocks are found in my region who lay eggs, from which sopranos come into the world that these cocks are called Norcini, who go on brooding for many days among our people, and that once the capon is made, the eggs are festooned with flattery, caresses, and money. I just... (laughs) (laughs) So what do you make of that as an origin story? It's actually, it brings me exactly to where I wanted to go, which was to go back to this mutant thing, because you mentioned that... So I made that, I compared them to mutants from the superhero science fiction kind of idiom. And then you were saying at the time, they compared them to barnyard animals. But what's interesting is that barnyard animals, farm animals are precisely mutants. They're animals whose evolutionary tract was redefined by humans. You know, this idea of impossible birds. I mean, I don't know. To me, this has a a quality of many myths of impossible births, an impossible birth to go with an impossible person, a mutant, right? uh, a person who has strange gifts that other people don't. Now, it's not like it's not replicable. You know that if you have somebody of sufficient musical ability and you castrate them in this manner and then train them up at a singing academy of a sort that existed in the 17th, 18th centuries, that you will arrive at a functioning professional castrato. So it's not as if they're mutants in the sense that, um, you know, X-Men mutants are like each one is unique, right? The superpowers involved are all the same from one castrato to another. And there's no real mystery involved in how they are made. So there's some differences. But then at the same time, 
the figure of the castrato also presents you with a kind of impossibility, something that feels impossible or just doesn't fit in any comfortable place in the natural order, not male, not female, not neuter, as Bellatri says, uh, then what are you? Well, I am the hatched product of a male chicken. That's obviously a joke, right? Bellatri has a very kind of self-ironic mode of presentation, but nevertheless, it's catching at something that's just sort of like the existence of a human conundrum, an impossibility. I don't know, because in a sense, he was neutered. That's what he was, right? Like mm -hmm. he was, there's nothing more mysterious really to Bellatri uh, than there is to a castrated bull, right? an ox. Um, mm -hmm. So, but what makes it so strange, even at the time, is that the practice of castration occupied a very ambiguous place in the kind of collective mm -hmm. imagination and in the culture. For instance, the church needed castrati to deliver the music they needed to produce in the mass right. at the same time as the church forbade castration for anything but medical procedures. So it was necessary for the parents of castrati to fabricate some kind of false medical reason why the castration needed to happen. And often what they would give as a reason, according to Fellman, was some accident involving an animal. They'd been uh, bitten by a dog or they'd been gored by a, by a wild boar or uh, by a pig on the farm or whatever. The, bitten by to, swans. A weird yeah, number right. of them were bitten by, in the junk by swans. Yeah, like I, I think that they, at some point they surveyed a whole bunch of castrati and they all said they'd been bitten by swans. That was their, <laughs> this particular group, that's what they all said. So it was kind of this thing where we're just going to suspend our disbelief here, whenever we mm -hmm. ask a castrato, how did you end up this way? We're given a myth. We're not given the truth mm -hmm. because the truth was not acceptable. But in itself, that kind of lifts castrato into this imaginal space where they therefore have to exist because these yeah. are beings that exist among us whose origins we can't discuss. So they yes. are kind of like these descended celestial beings that come from the other world. They're, they're yeah. literally from a kind of imaginary space. They're imaginary beings. It's, it's yeah. Yeah. impossible They're biological beings. creatures that have been engineered to make art. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Imagine breeding up a kind of cow that makes music, right? Yeah. Or, chick or chicken in this case, right? Well, you know, that's actually not so hard to understand. You can breed up birds that are beloved for their song. And Feldman points out how close animal imagery is to the characterizations of what castrati are. Like, she points out that the swan thing, like swans had their own myth attached to them that they would sing when they died, you know? And so like linking animality and death and voice together, these are like mythic configurations where these mythemes, these different traits of myth braid together in weird ways. Like the idea of livestock, as you say, the castrato is no more mysterious than an ox is, you know, it's a, an animal that has been castrated in order to get certain kind of work from it. That means that the castrato is understood constantly in terms of animality 
Exactly. Yeah. But something that's interesting about that is like that animality is something that is a latent potential of every human being because, you know, we are in fact animals and not in the early modern period, not as far separated from the daily experience of animals as we are now. You know, Feldman points out that actually wounding by wild boars was a pretty common occurrence in rural Italy. And Among so noblemen, not, yeah, specifically, yeah. Yeah, not as, not as cheesy a fabrication as it might immediately sound. People lived in nearness to animals and there's a sense of like dangerous animals, wild animals that exact a cost on human civilization. And so there are sort of feelings of like taming nature through sacrifice, through blood sacrifice. Um, again, these are like kind of mythemes that braid together in understanding how this human being who has a prosaic origin story, oh yeah, they were you know castrated by their parents and in hopes that they would raise up a money tree, like this child will become a rich and successful castrato and the family will be thereby enriched. But then at the same time, there's a kind of otherness of like ourselves. I, I don't know if Feldman quite says this, but it's a thought that I'm having right now. You know, in confronting the castrato, we're confronting our own animality in a way, simply by virtue of the fact that we're seeing this being that has been bred up as mm -hmm. a, a kind of beast of burden, a working animal. Yeah. And uh, our own kinship to that working animal is something that rebounds upon ourselves. It's a weird feeling in us. Yeah, absolutely. And so it, it, this is an ins a perfect example of how the castrato negates and affirms at the same time as a kind of trickster figure. He affirms our animality by showing that all that separates me from a castrato is the fact that no one castrated me. If someone had castrated me, I would have become this other type of being. And so I'm reminded of the, the materiality of my existence and the contingencies of my existence and the, the basically my own animality. At the same time as what comes from the castration, this celestial angelic music, this more human than human or superhuman power also reminds me of the angelic part of, of the human, of yes. the human. And this is an example of how the castrato straddles that liminal zone between animality and humanity in the same way that he straddles the zone between the old regime and the new order. Because what's yes. interesting, and Feldman you know, writes a lot about this, is that the castrato is both a figure of the old world and a figure of the new modern world. He's a figure of the old world because he's a eunuch, and eunuchs were essential to the functioning of old world imperial systems. Um, but he's a figure of the new world because he's reappropriating or basically de he's a deterritorialized eunuch. He's a eunuch that's re-territorialized in a modern context governed by money because the Italian states were very mercantile. And so he's like a rock star who's able to get really, really rich while affirming and maintaining an old system that is opposed to mercantile kind of like uh, right. money economies. That is a system yeah. of absolutist divine right of kings kind of world that he, that right. he uh, embodies. So he straddles those two worlds. And he also That's straddles right. the world of, in the religious sense, he straddles sin and saintliness. The castration is a sin. It's not supposed to be done, but it's necessary in order to generate the saintliness of the voice itself. So he's negating and affirming a moral code as well. Yeah. So it's a really interesting figure. So in that sense, people would make fun of them and kind of ridicule them because they were not real men and all the, all the reasons you'd expect people at the time to make fun of such individuals. 
at the same time as they revere him because he affirms the very structures in whose name one might ridicule them. It's like yes. both at the same time. Yeah. It's like, yeah, they're just these wonderful enigmas um, yeah. that are required for a system to maintain itself. Just like yeah. carnival, carnival is required for the rest of the year to happen. For order to be established and maintained, you need that little period where the laws are suspended and anything can happen. It's like chaos in order to reaffirm order. So the castrato, according to Feldman, from what I understood, plays a similar role in um, Ancien Regime Europe, you know, the pre-French Revolution Europe. Yep. Well, that liminality, that multiple liminality, liminality on multiple fronts is so interesting. Um, let's pause just a moment on the liminality of function between the Ancien Regime and the new emerging capitalist world of the 18th century. The way that would play out often in the life of an individual castrato is, okay, so they've been castrated, taken from their homes, and brought to these elite music academies. Some of them learning to sing alongside other non-altered human beings, and sometimes it's just castrati. But even in the situations where it's a mixed group of students, the castrati are kept separate. They wear different garments. They have an unbelievably rigorous regime, stories of which sound like shit from old martial arts movies, like where they have to spend five years singing a single page of exercises and nothing but exercises to, to train up the maximum flexibility and power of their voice. Mixed uh, in with all kinds of religious uh, ritual and that sort of yeah. thing as well. And, yeah. and also deep learning. I mean, like these guys were just performing fleas. They studied counterpoint and harmony. They were Composition, often, yeah. They were often good composers. And very often they became much caressed members of royal households that would take it upon themselves to train them in the arts, not just of being a high class sort of person, a noble, but a king, like to train them up in actually kingly manners. What would sometimes happen, admittedly in a rarity of instances, but still what would sometimes happen is that, you know, especially the most gifted of these musicians, okay, they would eventually graduate to singing in a chapel, maybe the papal chapel, right? But as opera really starts to take off after the mid 17th century and becomes like mass popular entertainment by the early 18th century. So in London, there are multiple opera theaters competing with one another to attract the services of the greatest singers and the wealthy entitled of the realm, you know, like you have to show up at the opera. It becomes like a, a, a very important diversion for the highest stratum of society. And so sometimes these chapel singers sort of graduate to the stage where they make huge fortunes. They are making money on a scale impossible except for the wealthiest of landed gentry. Yeah. And some of them end up owning vast tracts of land and yeah. basically become really powerful aristocrats, yeah. essentially. While at the same time, owing their importance in society to the fact that at least the most stratospheric of them have been taken up by existing royal power as surrogates. This is another thing that uh, Feldman discusses how the idea of kingship, on the one hand, you have to have the indivisible sole ruler, but the idea that kingship is inherently divisible because it has to be, because you have the idea of the office of the king, as it were, 
the, the, that role and the contingent flesh and blood person who's inhabiting it, who will eventually die and be succeeded by somebody else. So you have to have this idea that the very nature of kingship is divided. Uh, but then at the same time, there's the idea of like, okay, well, the king rules by representation, by the representation of the king throughout the land, the the picture of the king on the wall or the representation of the king on the coin. Um, but this idea of like, you know, spreading the, the royal image throughout the land means that you're going to need surrogates. You're going to need someone like a castrato who is not only bred up to royal manners, but will be in a certain sense, the emissary of royal power, privilege, splendor, and so on, which is how you end up with somebody like Farinelli who moves smoothly between like, you know, starting off like everybody else as a chapel singer, becoming the biggest star of the age. And by the way, this is something that came up when we were talking to James Curcio, uh, the origin of celebrity culture in the 18th century. You know, Farinelli is an early example of the ultimate modern archetype, the celebrity. And yet he moves smoothly between being a celebrity and being um, an intimate of the Spanish royal house, being an indispensable member of that household. And those two things being entwined, like those things not being apart from one another or set in opposition to one another, but the body of the castrato unites them. Yeah. And that's something we could probably track back to previous regimes and, and systems, because I know that certain eunuchs in Byzantium and in the late Roman Empire became extremely powerful for precisely, I, th I would guess, for the same reason, it's that the eunuch, in a way, transcends the world. Like, we have to understand how important progeny was to these societies and how dangerous progeny was. Like, an emperor would fear the sons of his servants more than anything. Because a son is always, when a son comes into the world, there's always a kind of potential for a reversal. And yeah. the goal of the father in a patriarchal system is to replicate himself in the son. But the danger is always because he has to do this. He has to commit violence to the individuality of the son. The son could rebel against the father and rebellions of sons against fathers is as old as, you know, that's kind of what, that's the, like the, one of the prime motors of history. So a eunuch is someone who has been extracted from that process, from that cycle. A eunuch will not produce progeny. So you can trust a eunuch. If you're an emperor, you want eunuchs all around you. You want eunuchs in charge of your, um, your wives, of your, you know, your, um, what do you call it, your harem or whatever they called it. You want eunuchs in charge of your administration because that risk that they would betray you in the name of their son to ensure a better future for their son or that their sons would betray them and you them, as yeah. well is eliminated. And this speaks to the angelic or otherworldly position that eunuchs have occupied throughout history. By extracting themselves from the, the sexuality game of producing offspring, finding wives, forming alliances with other families, they transcend history a little bit. Mm -hmm. And um, therefore, castrati were often compared to angels, uh, into yeah. beings of pure intellect and pure form that descend into our world. And therefore, it's clear why you would find in a castrato the perfect image of kingship. But it's an insufficient image because kingship needs to include 
generation, generation. Yeah. And, and, and so it's an imperfect king. It's a one-time king. So the king needs that. Oh yeah, I like that. That castrato kind of uh, image to represent him as a kind of like prism through which his own power can radiate. I, I don't know. It's just, it just makes sense to me that way. Yeah. And that's another liminality. It's not just the liminality between the human being and the animal, but also between the human being and the angel. And yes. my favorite single quote in this whole book is right at the beginning. From the Marquez story? Yeah. The, yeah. the first chapter of Strange Births and Comic Ken. And Feldman says that her work on this project started with a single kind of uh, flash of insight that she had reading Gabriel Garcia Marquez's story, A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings, A Tale for Children. And this is the passage she quotes. Everyone knew that a flesh and blood angel was held captive in Palayo's house. Against the judgment of the wise neighbor woman, for whom angels in those times were fugitive survivors of a celestial conspiracy, they did not have the heart to club him to death. Palayo watched over him all afternoon from the kitchen, armed with his bailiff's club, and before going to bed, he dragged him out of the mud and locked him up with the hens in the wire chicken coop. A short time afterward, their child woke up without a fever and with a desire to eat. When they went out into the courtyard with the first sight of dawn, they found the whole neighborhood in front of the chicken coop having fun with the angel without the slightest reverence, tossing him things to eat through the openings in the wire as if he weren't a supernatural creature, but a circus animal. The news of the captive angel spread with such rapidity that after a few hours, the courtyard had the bustle of a marketplace, and they had to call in troops with fixed bayonets to disperse the mob that was about to knock the house down. Elizenda then got the idea of fencing in the yard and charging five cents admission to see the angel. That reminds me of Thomas Ligotti's story that we discussed on this show. Mrs. Rinaldi's angel. Right. Yeah. The idea of a caged angel or a captive angel yeah. is, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's something that recurs in different ways in modern literature and storytelling. There's um, this defilement of the angel as it falls into time is uh, yeah. an interesting- And it's still trope. an angel. It still heals their sick child, apparently just by virtue of being there. And this- is a wonderful image of what the castrato is, this divine creature that's capable of miracles uh, and yet sold for money to a gawking crowd yeah. um, and treated with a kind of, a, you know, a litany of abuses and injustices or humiliations. You know, the position of the castrato, this comes out loud and clear in Palatri's uh, memoir, is how much of the writing is stimulated by asserting himself against the presupposition that he's not really a human being. Right. You know, insisting in this ironic and self-mocking way, insisting upon his rights and privileges as a human being. In a, in a sense, we, one could say that the castrato is a fallen angel, an angel that has fallen into time and therefore is susceptible to both reverence and ridicule equally mm -hmm. in a kind of a, almost contradictory way. And um, Fellman goes into a uh, comparison of the castrato. She, she doesn't spend much time on the angel thing. She spends more time on the Pulcinella uh, right. comparison. Pulcinella being a Commedia dell'arte character from Italy, 
from which we get like Punch from the Punch and Judy show and that sort of character, a kind of clown figure who gets to break all the rules, gets to occupy all the positions in society simultaneously and basically just transgresses against all the, the conventions of the time. And it seems like in these uh, in this story of the captive angel, that basically the angel falls to earth and becomes a kind of sideshow, a kind of uh, freak show um, that people can pay five cents to go and attend. The figure of the clown, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Clowns and angels are similar insofar as both are a little scary and a little repellent. A little scary and a little repellent, yeah. I was rereading the uh, some passages from Aquinas on angels, which are very interesting. He describes angels as these beings of pure intellect and basically just radiating the perfection of the divine. But then at the end, he's like, but they're scary. And uh, whenever angels come up in the Old Testament, the people who encounter them, once they figure out that they're not human, are scared. Often angels are terrifying. Um, even though they are emissaries of the good, capital G, they manifest as uh, extremely dangerous, volatile almost, like anything could happen around these things, like explosive. And the clown similarly is both something to laugh at and something to fear. Like a clown at night is not funny, right? <laughs> um, now it's almost as weird because clowns aren't considered funny by anybody anymore. They're just considered scary now, it seems. They've completely graduated to the realm of horror. I don't know, that might not be true. Well, the, uh, I feel bad for clowns. Don't you feel yeah. bad for clowns? Like that's a that's an art form. And, it and is. The and the people care about it, practice it with as much love of the tradition and care for the technique and execution of it as uh, a classical musician does their own art form. And all that happens is they just get memed by a bunch of people who don't even know any of that shit. I know. It I know. sucks. It would suck to be a clown. To be like an official, according to Hoyle, trained clown. I, I know a couple of clowns and they do amazing work. One of my good friends used to do clown in hospitals, children's hospitals in Toronto. The kids loved it, obviously. And so it seems like the culture has exploited that shadow side of the clown and eclipsed the other side, which isn't much yeah. better than taking it the other way around. I mean, well, just... and this is, this is getting to something that so far we haven't actually really talked about directly, which is what is the thing at the center? What is the gift of the castrato that makes them a fitting surrogate for the king, that makes them seem like an angel, that allows them to earn vast sums of money? What is it that occasions the extraordinary social accommodations in the, in the Italian peninsula that allows for a multi-century long industry of castration to happen despite the strictures of the church, but also in collusion with the church. Like all of these contradictions and uh, uh, aporia, all of these things have to be occasioned by something truly astonishing, right? All of this fuss has to have something that it's about. And what it's about is the voice. Right. And so we need to talk for a moment about like, what is it about the voice that could possibly occasion all of this fuss? Uh, when you listen to those old recordings of Alessandro Moreschi, it's hard to see what the fuss is about, uh, at least for me. Part of it is his antique style of 
phrasing. There was another singer who described him as having a tear in every note. Yeah. And there's this kind of sobbing affectation that you find in, uh, I guess, you know, singers of, of the last age. You know, it's a 19th century thing. It would have sounded terribly old fashioned even in the early 20th century. And that sobbing quality is particularly noticeable, actually, in another of Moreski's recordings where, with totally incongruously, he's singing a bit of plain chant and where he is constantly scooping up to notes. Yeah. And uh, it sounds just very tasteless. It just sounds very tacky. It clutters up the musical line. You know, there's something about the that style. It makes it hard to really hear the quality of the voice. And also, as I said, the recordings themselves don't give you a real sense of the quality of the voice. And so even with that recorded evidence, we're still left like, okay, what is special about the castrato voice? And Feldman does some interesting detective work, even with these highly deficient recordings. She figures out something very interesting. Okay, so this is going to get slightly technical. I'm going to try and keep it simple. But the way the human voice works is that men and women both have a break in their voice between two different ways that the larynx can make sounds. And we tend to call the one kind, what we think of as a natural voice, like what I'm speaking in right now, is chest voice, uh, corpetto in Italian. And... The other kind of voice is what's called head voice. People sometimes call it falsetto, and uh, which I can do only with great difficulty because they damaged my voice a few years ago. So I actually find it very difficult to speak in falsetto. Um, but there's a break between those two registers. Each register has its own sound quality, but there's a break between them Women and men experience it in the same place. It's sort of between like a D sharp and an F sharp above middle C. And what it appears is that, okay, put it this way. Um, boys whose voices have not broken can sing a whole bunch of notes above that break between the chest voice and the head voice. They can sing a whole bunch of notes above that in full chest. And full chest means it's not really in the chest. It just feels like it's in the chest. You have a great deal more power because when you're singing in falsetto or head voice, the vocal cords relax slightly. And so they let a certain amount of air out. So it's a breathier sound. It's not as powerful. You can't press it. You can't create as much resonance with it. Whereas if you're singing stuff in chest voice, you have full power, right? Yeah. Long story short, by arresting the laryngeal development of boys, but their bodies keep growing. You have this massive body uh, with tremendous lung power that has been trained up for an early age that is able to sing notes in full chest voice that go up to the stratosphere. Right. So like even women can't do that because of yeah. the fact that, as I've said, the break between head voice and chest voice comes at about the same place for women and men. And Feldman finds some evidence in listening closely to Moreski's um, recording of the Bach Guno Ave Maria 
that you can hear that everything up into uh, like a high G is sung full chest. Now, his voice isn't that good and his interpretation is tacky as hell. But just from a pure physical point of view, even a faded and badly recorded castrato voice, Feldman is able to deduce that what's remarkable about it is that he basically treats that break as if it doesn't exist. He can sing high pitches with a kind of power that no other human body could manage. And also with a total ease of gliding over the break. You know, that's what Italian vocal masters call the passaggio. And the art of bel canto is about basically being able to move between chest and head voices without it really being audible. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. So you have a perfectly smooth and even gradation of tone from top to bottom of your range. Uh, the castrati could just do that naturally. And... They also were equipped with a range from top to bottom and a well-conditioned voice of such astonishing brilliance and power. There are stories of Farinelli, for example, at this Haymarket Theater, having a contest with a trumpet player as to who could sing, who could play the loudest and longest trill. And Farinelli apparently kicked this trumpet player's ass. Like, that's a trumpet, right? Imagine a voice more powerful and brilliant than a well-trained trumpet player. So clearly, you know, we don't have direct evidence, but we have some indirect evidence of what physiologically would have made a castrato voice, at least potentially, an amazingly powerful instrument. And we have all these stories. We have other kinds of evidence that Feldman adduces. People who would transcribe the vocal ornaments that Castrati would add to things. And you see these things notated on the page. If you know how to read music, it could be astonishing. You'd be like, that does not look like a vocal line. That looks like a something that a violin would play. Violin, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. How the fuck are you supposed to sing that? You know, so indirectly using a lot of different kinds of evidence, Feldman is able to give us something of a sense that, you know, we can maybe glimpse through a cracked smudged mirror, we can kind of glimpse in these old recordings of Moreski, the idea of a voice that simply would have sounded like something from outside of the natural order, like something from God, something like the power of an angel. Because precisely because it's a high voice. And of course, we have the the kind of vertical axis archetype where right. as things get more refined and more ethereal and closer to God, they get higher. <laughs> and right. so the high voice evokes a celestial atmosphere. You know, another reason why castrati were so essential is because if I read this correctly, is that in Italy, women were banned from singing. So yeah. at least for, for a long while. Yeah. Yeah. And now so, I, I will point out yeah. that the uncastrated men can and still do sing alto and even soprano parts. Right. There are men that I know personally uh, who are what are called countertenors, which is people who are singing in a woman's range using head voice only. And they just cultivate that head voice to get the breathiness out of it, to make it stronger and more resonant. And there were plenty of male soprano and altos who were unaltered physically. But nevertheless, people always said, yeah, but that's like a, that, that isn't even the same ballpark. That isn't even in the same time zone as a good castrato voice. And everybody knew it. In other words, the only way to get a castrato voice is to castrate a boy. Exactly. Yeah. Except no substitutes. Yeah. (laughs) So, and now we make our pitch for bringing it back. (laughs) Yeah, that's... (laughs) 
I just had um, a thought. I just had a thought. Like you know, in death metal, it's exactly the opposite. I like what you said that you know the vertical axis upwards is uh, tracks the an, an image of transcendence. It's interesting that death metal. It's all about trying to figure out ways to get both the voices and guitars. Yeah, down tune and, and, yeah. and the yeah detune so low yeah. that they're, they're building new special kind of strings that you can play. Uh, severely detuned and they're still like, you know, yeah. they still resonate. Um, Absolutely. And there's that myth of the brown note. We've all heard that too. It's like there's supposedly a certain frequency, a certain depth of tone. If you can reach that note that's so low that you can't even hear it, it's below our spectrum. Um, it will make everybody shit themselves. And um, it's been a kind of holy grail of like, death metal bands to produce this <laughs> tone and make their, you know, entire audience, um, you know, soil themselves. And I mean, there again, they, you know, whether that brown note exists or not, the point is that it evokes again, the same symbolism, the same vertical axis of moving upwards outside of matter into the ethereal, into the celestial or downwards into matter and eventually into the demonic, into the infernal. It's hard to imagine somebody willing themselves to be castrated or physically altered in order to produce high pitches, but actually wouldn't have a hard time imagining a death metal musician undergoing some kind of physical mod to get a really kind of growly death voice. You know, I, I bring up death metal simply to point out that like there are many aspects of the castrato that seems outlandish and very much of another age, which of course it is a product of not just different musical tastes, but a whole different mode of society. And yet at the same time, I don't think that our present age is entirely lacking in examples of people willing to undergo profound modifications in order to achieve a certain kind of artistic end. And I'm thinking of um, uh, Genesis Peorich, who just died recently. Um, this is something I knew sort of vaguely in the back of my mind. I just looked it up on Wikipedia. So um, Genesis uh, was married to a woman named L Lady J. And uh, Genesis and Lady J became a couple. And then I'm reading here from the Wikipedia Page in January 1993, Genesis and Lady J moved to Ridgewood, Queens, in New York City. Here they embarked on the Pandrogyny Project. Influenced by the cut-up technique, the duo underwent body modification to resemble one another, thus coming to identify themselves as a single pandrogynous being named Briar Piorge. In doing so, the pair spent $200,000 on surgical alteration receiving breast implants, cheek and chin implants, lip plumping, eye and nose jobs, tattooing and hormone therapy, while also adopting gender neutral and alternating pronouns. With this project, Peorge's intent was to express a belief that the self is pure consciousness trapped within a DNA governed body. The couple adopted the term pandrogyne because, in their words, quote, we wanted a word without any history or any connections with things, a word with its own story and its own information. Huh. I find that interesting. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't seem to me to be different in intent, considered very generally, from what we've been talking about. Of course, Genesis Purge and Lady J decided to embark upon this as adults with the full uh, as much consent to this as is possible to imagine, uh, situation not shared by 17th, 18th century castrati. But nevertheless, the 
willingness to undergo body modification in order to create a kind of an artistic vision. It's interesting. I wouldn't say that the desire to transform the human, the transhumanist move, I don't think that that's gone. In fact, it seems like it would be more present now than ever. People getting tattoos left and right, including me or body piercings or what have you, or other more uh, uh, profound kinds of body modification with the aim of questioning and subverting our shared assumption of what the human is and getting away from any such essentialized notion of the human. It's just so strange and sort of science fictional to think about a whole class of people to whom this is being done, a transhumanist project in the 16th, 17th, 18th century. That's an interesting thought. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.